The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com slash connect. Well, hey, good to be with you this morning. Uh, there you are. Hey, good to be with you. As I said earlier, my name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, grab a Bible. Go to Genesis chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there should be some on the seat backs in front of you. You can grab that. If you don't own a Bible, uh, you can take that home to read it and to encounter Jesus and put your faith in him and have your whole life and eternity changed. If you're like a Bible collector, that's not for you. That's not free. Uh, but if you need a Bible, feel free to. It's not even that. I mean, it's fine. It's like paper. Like You don't want that one. Uh, it's good. It's a good Bible. It's got the word of God. All right. Uh, in case you missed it last Last week, we kicked off uh, our series on the Apostles' Creed, uh, which is, in case you had forgotten over the past seven days, a eight-sentence historic from about 100 AD summary of Christian core doctrine, core beliefs, what Christians throughout time and across continents and languages and cultures and denominations have agreed upon as the foundational essentials to our faith. And we said last week that since the first century, Christians have used the creed primarily for two specific things. First, to form their doctrine, what we called orthodoxy, right? Ortho meaning right, dox meaning belief, right, belief. And second, to fuel their discipleship or orthopraxy, right, practice. And so as we said last week, it's our hope that as we explore the creed together over the course of this summer, that the Lord, by his kindness and through the Holy Spirit, would use the creed to do the same for us. That we would grow in our knowledge and understanding of the core beliefs of our faith, but not just to know them or affirm them or say yes to them, but with our whole selves, give ourselves in devotion, allegiance, and surrender, not just to the doctrine of the creed, but the God of the creed. So to kick us off this morning, as we'll do for the rest of the series, let's begin by reading the creed together. So I invite you to stand. Uh, if you're not a Christian, you can just stand with us and not say anything. But if you're a follower of Jesus, stand with me. It's going to be on the screen. We're going to read the Apostles' Creed together. It says this, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Before you're seated, let's pray. Lord, we ask you to be with us, to do what you've done through the ages, Lord, to take your word, put it into our hearts, and change our lives. So we ask you to be with us and do what only you can do. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. amen. You can have a seat. Now, before we get into the specific line that we're covering today, one of the things I want to make sure we're clear on is how central to the creed the Christian understanding of God is. You see, the Christian understanding of God is different from the Islamic understanding of God. It's different from the Mormon understanding of God. It's different even from the Jewish understanding of God. As Christians, we believe in the triune God. God is a trinity. What we mean by that is that God is one God, three distinct persons. 
One God, one nature, three persons. So you and I as humans, we have one nature, one person. God as we worship him is one nature, three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So there's a tension in scripture that points us to this. Look at these passages together. Deuteronomy 6, Matthew 28. Deuteronomy 6 says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Then look at Matthew 28. Jesus, the Great Commission, sending out his disciples, says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Our God is one God, three persons. One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, instantly, if you grew up in church, you're like, I know the analogy, three-leaf clover, egg, three types of water. They're all heresy. Don't try to put an analogy on it. Just accept what it says. One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. The three persons are not part of God. They are fully God. One God, three persons. And if you're like, that's confusing, and we're already just jumping in, yes, me too. It's one of the great mysteries and yet realities of our faith. And I wanted to start with that because the creed, as we're going to see over the course of this summer, is distinctly Trinitarian. So this week, we're going to start with God the Father, but next week, we're going to head into a few weeks covering God the Son, Jesus Christ. And then after that, the creed talks about believing in the Holy Spirit, God, the Holy Spirit. And so as we look at the creed, I want to make sure we acknowledge that the Trinity is all over this thing because the Trinity is all over the scriptures and the creed points us back to the scriptures. And so this week we're emphasizing and specifically focusing on God, the Father. And here's what the creed says. Here's the line we just read together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I want us to spend our time today thinking about the almighty creating God, God the creator. Now, just to disappoint you from the jump, I do not plan to settle any debates about creation this morning. We tend to, when it comes to our doctrine of creation, spend our time wondering and debating about the how, right? Was it a literal six days, but with the appearance of age? Or was creation more like a poetic thing where God took six 1,000-year periods? Or is it theistic evolution where God kind of sets it into motion and then it ran the course he designed? And if you're hoping that's where I'm going to take us over the next 30 minutes, I'm sorry, I'm not. That's not my goal today. And I'm begging you, if you are a part of one of our community groups, if you're not in a group, get in a group. If you're a part of a group, do not make your group about that this week, okay? Please do not. I will find out. And here's why. Here's why I'm saying we're not focusing on that, and I don't want you to focus on that this week. Two reasons. One, because for us at Citizens, the how of creation is what we call an open issue, meaning there's freedom to arrive at a number of various theological positions and still be a part of our church and a Christian within the bounds of orthodox belief. But second, we're not going there today, and I would say more importantly because of this. When it comes to our doctrine of creation, the Bible seems much less concerned about the how and much, much, much more concerned about the who. When it comes to our doctrine of creation, the Bible seems much less concerned about the how and much more concerned about the who. You see, when you open the scriptures, page one, line one, you are confronted with what becomes a resounding echo throughout the rest of the first chapter. Look at this with me. Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And this is repeated again and again in the first chapter. In fact, 32 times in the first 31 verses, God is doing something. 
God creates, God speaks, God sees, God, God, God. In the beginning, God, God, not theories, not speculation, not scientific discoveries, God. At the forefront of the scriptures is a who, and that who is God. Theologian J.I. Packer says it this way, it is arguable how much or how little Genesis 1 and 2 tell us about the method of creation. Whether, for instance, they do or do not rule out the idea of physical organisms evolving through epochs of thousands of years. What is clear, however, is that their main aim is to tell us not how the world was made, but who made it. That's the point of Genesis 1. To make sure that no one is confused about this reality, God is the creator of the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1-1 starts with God because the universe starts with God and therefore points to God. As we were reminded this morning, even in our call to worship, right? The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. We're meant to see the what of creation and not debate the how, but rather worship the who, and here's why I think that is, because who you think is behind all of this, all of this meaning what is created, not just the room, what you think, who you think is behind all of this will dictate why you think it's all here, and why you think it's all here will then dictate how you live. This is Albert Muller, so he says it. He says, why does the universe exist? How do we explain the cosmos right down to our individual existence? These are questions no intelligent person can avoid, and the answers to these questions determine just about every meaningful question that will follow. For example, let's say if you were to go along with the prevailing narrative of the origin of the world of secularism and humanism today. In the beginning, not God, but nothing. In the beginning, nothing. Before the cosmos and the time and time began, there was nothing. And then in a moment, there was something. And then that something by chance and science expanded and expanded into the universe we have today. There's no designer behind the whole thing, but random acts of scientific anomalies which lead to what we experience and eventually point us to our existence. That's the, the functional belief of humanism and secularism. There was nothing, and now by accidental chance there is something. That's not me making that up. Alan Lightman, he's a renowned physicist in this world, says, quote, we live in an accidental universe. One in a, a number you can't even explain, chance possibility that we are here today. And if that is true, then any legitimate interpretation of the world must admit this whole thing is purposeless at its core. In fact, it was the ideas and teachings of Charles Darwin and Darwinian evolution which drove philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche to write, quote, humanity is stuck in a world of chaos and thrownness. We'll consider the words of theologian R.C. Sproul. Modern man contemplates the horror that he may live between two poles, meaninglessness and insignificance. If our origin is accidental and insignificant, and if our destiny is annihilation, is it not absurd to believe that we have some significance in between? If where we come from is accidental and where we're going is an end, then isn't it absurd to think any of this has meaning? Because who you think is behind it will dictate why you think it's here and then therefore will dictate how you live, which is why as followers of Jesus, the how is not unimportant, it's just not most important. Most important is the who. And so the creed and Genesis 1-1 ground us in the who. In the beginning, God. And so what I want to do is I want to just hone in on this one verse. This is about as deep dive as you can get. And what I want to show us over the next few minutes is who Genesis 1-1 tells us God is. Four attributes, characteristics, beautiful realities about God you can get just from this one verse. All right? Sound good? Sweet. <laughs> 
Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Four realities about God I want to show you just from this one verse. Number one, God is eternal. God is eternal. If you stay with me through this, I promise it'll pay off. In the beginning, there is God. Meaning before time itself even began, before there was a beginning to this whole thing, there was nothing except God. This is what it means that God is eternal, that the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit have no beginning. They were there before in the beginning even started. We as humans, we have a beginning but no end. You will live on into eternity, either glory or judgment, depending on your faith in Jesus. We have a beginning, no end. God has no beginning and no end. He's eternal. He exists from eternity past to eternity future. This is what he says about himself in Revelation 22. I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Eternity past to eternity future. But if that is not enough, God being eternal doesn't just mean God existed before time begins, but it also means that therefore he is the one who begins time. He is the author of time who therefore exists outside of time, which if I can just hurt our brains for a second, that means God doesn't work linearly like we do. So time for us as humans means today, then tomorrow, means 9 a.m., then 10 a.m., means 2023, then 2024. Linearly, that's how we chronologically progress through time as humans. That's not how time works for God. God stands outside of linear time. He doesn't go through time sequentially like we do. He stands outside of and over time. Look at Psalm 90, verses 2 and 4. It says, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. For a thousand years in your sight, or but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. Or as theologian Henry Thiessen puts it, by the eternality of God, we mean his infinity in relation to time. We mean that he is without beginning or end, that he is free from all secession of time, and that he is the cause of time. Eternity for God is one capital N now. God is not limited by time as we are limited by time. It's the first, God is eternal. Number two, God is infinite. God is infinite. If God created the heavens and the earth, that means by definition, he must be greater than this creation. Meaning God cannot be and is not bound by the heavens and the earth. That's the Bible's language for everything. Heavens and the earth, when you see that in the scriptures, means everything, everything you see and don't see. Since God is the author of it, he is not bound by it. He exists outside of their limits. He is, as theologians call it, omnipresent, meaning he exists everywhere at all times. Omni meaning all, present meaning present. You see, God is not a corporeal or embodied being. So God the Son takes on a body. God the Son takes on flesh when he comes to earth, but God himself is not bodied. Meaning to say God is omnipresent, that is present everywhere, does not mean God is just really, really massive. Like him being everywhere in the universe at all times does not mean he's just really big and takes up all the space. It also isn't some weird version of Pocahontas pantheism where he's in everything. It means he stands outside of it all. It means that he is not limited by spatial presence or spatial reality at all. So he exists outside of the limits of time. He's eternal, but also outside of the limits of space. He's infinite. 
This is why in 1 Kings 8, Solomon, the son of David, he builds a temple. He spends seven years building a temple so that God's presence will dwell in the temple. And he gets done after the seven years of building. And this is what he says. Will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Seven years of building the temple. And his response is, well, gonna need a bigger place. God can't dwell in the temple. He can't even dwell on the earth. Number three. God is all-powerful. God is all-powerful. The theological term for this would be omnipotent, all-potent, all-powerful. God creates, in Genesis 1, everything without even lifting a finger. This is the pattern that's repeated in the first chapter of the Bible. I'll give you just two, Genesis 1, verse 3. And God said, let there be light, boom, and there was light. Or Genesis 1, 9, and God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God speaks everything we see and don't see into existence. The trees, the flowers, the ocean, oxygen, animals, puppies. On behalf of God, you're welcome. God spoke that into existence. And now Psalm 104 tells us, sustains it and keeps it all spinning. Now, just so we're clear, when we say God is omnipotent, that he is all powerful, it does not mean God can quote, do anything. All right, let's just be really clear on this. There are things God cannot do. Let's just talk about that for a second. Specifically, God cannot act contrary to his nature. And so since God is perfectly holy and good, he cannot perform evil. He cannot lie, Titus chapter one. He cannot sin and he cannot change. Hebrews 13 says he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So rather, it's more accurate to say that God being omnipotent or all powerful means this. God can and will do all that he intends as he rules over his creation. That's what it means that he's all powerful, that he can and will do everything that he intends to do as he rules over his creation. This is Psalm 135, six. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. To help us get a grasp of this, I want you just to think for a second about the last time you felt unable to do something. Like think about the last time you were unable to control something in your life, unable to set something into motion you wanted to set into motion, unable to accomplish something you desperately wanted to accomplish. God being all powerful means he has never felt that inability. He has never felt the lack. He, God has never desired to do something and not seen it through to be done. That's what it means that he is all powerful. He does whatever he pleases, that he is reigning and ruling as he sees fit. So that's three. God is not bound by time. He's eternal. He's not bound by space. He's infinite. And he's not bound by inability. He's all powerful. But there's one more. Number four, God is independent. God is independent. God does not rely on anything in creation because he existed in perfection before he created it, right? God was perfect before anything or anyone else was here besides God, God was, meaning he's not reliant on any part of his creation for his perfection or wholeness, including you and me. God does not need us. He's perfectly fine by himself. He does not need us to give him glory. He does not need up to fill up, fill up something that's lacking within him. He does not need us to defend him to the world. He's God. He's perfect on his own. And there's this line of thinking that just permeates the church right now that tries to say or tries to teach that God created us because he was lonely. 
He created us because he needed a friend. God is love. And so he created humans because he needed someone to love. And it sounds legitimate. It's just not the scriptures. You see, God existed before time began in a trinity, father, son, and spirit in a perfect love relationship. Three persons, one God, meaning God didn't need you to show and exercise love. He had himself. The three members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. So God doesn't create out of a desire for love. He creates out of perfect love gushing forth into the universe. That's why he creates, not to get love, but to give love. Creates out of an overflow of the love the Father, Son, and Spirit already had for one another, moving out into the new world. So that's four. God is not bound by time. He's eternal. He's not bound by space. He's infinite. He's not bound by inability. He's omnipotent. He's not bound by neediness. He's independent. And I love that the creed starts this way. And I love that Genesis 1-1 starts this way. You can't even get past the first line or sentence of the scriptures without pausing to think about the bigness of God. And here's why this is so crucial. Before we move into the rest of the creed, before you move into the rest of the scriptures past Genesis 1-1, because if you're anything like me, your view of God and my view of God tends to be functionally way, 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 way too small. So we read about and we hear about and we confess belief in a big, magnificent, eternal, infinite, omnipotent, independent God. And yet functionally in the day-to-day of our lives, God is very functionally ordinary, very small and very normal human-sized. This is how it plays out. So I might, I might say, I believe in an eternal God who is not limited by time, who for a thousand years is like a day, but then I start freaking out and doubting him when his plans don't match my timeline. I start thinking, why is God delaying here? Why is he not acting sooner, thinking my timetable and what I want to see happen in my timeline is better than the one who stands outside of time? I might claim to believe in an infinite, limitless God who stands outside the confines of space, who is everywhere fully at all times, yet acting in particular places. But how often do I live with the reality of feeling alone? Like I might say, God is everywhere. He's outside of the limits of space. And then I go through my Tuesday morning and I'm like, I feel like he's not present with me. I feel like he's absent from me. He's distant from me. Or I might say, I trust the all-powerful, does whatever he pleases, nothing he desires that he can't do, God. But then pain enters, and hardship enters, and suffering enters, and suddenly I start doubting whether God can provide, if he's actually powerful, or if his purposes are in danger of failing. Or I might say, I worship an independent, self-sufficient, ways are higher than my ways, thoughts are higher than my thoughts, doesn't need anyone or anything, God. But then when he acts differently than I want, or provides differently than I desire, or acts differently, or says something differently than I want him to say in his word, I start trying to reform him instead into my thoughts, and my ways, and my image, rather than the other way around. And so the invitation of the creed, as it points to and illuminates Genesis 1, is to form our doctrine around the bigness of God. Somebody asked me this week, they said, what's the sermon about? And I said, it's so that when we want to shrink God in the functional reality of our lives, we wouldn't be so stupid. Because he's so much bigger than our functional idolatrous hearts ever want to make him. Is he not? So much more powerful, so much greater. And yet we walk around with a miniature sized God thinking he can't actually do what he says he can do in the world and in our lives. And so we confess and we sing and we celebrate. And here's the reality. We mean it most of the time. 
We, like, if you get pressed, hey, do you actually believe God is eternal? Do you actually believe he stands outside of time? He's working on his timetable? And you said, yes, I do. 99% of the time, we as Christians believe that. We really, really do. And then we get to Wednesday. And we're like, why is he so slow right now? Why is he not moving like I want him to move? And so the creed and the scriptures shape our doctrine, but then we go back to them because they have to shape it again. And then shape it again, and then shape it again, and then shape it again to continue to blow up our view of God and to help us not live life with an ordinary God, but with an extraordinary God as he's shown himself in the word. So in light of that, how does that then translate into our day-to-day lives, right? So that's the orthodoxy, right? This, this limitless God who's eternal, all-powerful, infinite, omnipotent, and independent, all of these things. How does that then get into our lives? Well, I think there's a ton. I just want to give us two. Maybe this week in group, you can talk about more ways this should shape your life. I just want to give us two really quick orthopraxy in light of the orthodoxy, how this actually gets into our lives. How do we respond? Number one, humility. Humility. The first response to this limitless God is humility. You can put a subpoint there of repentance. You could easily call this point repentance. See, what tends to happen in our lives is that when we shrink our view of God, we replace him with ourselves. We become our own functional gods who then God is supposed to serve. Or or what happens is when God is not big, when he becomes small, we fill that space with ourselves and he becomes the one created in our image rather than us created in his. We become the one who stands over the universe. We become the one who stand over our lives. And he is the one who acts or should act in accordance with what we as the now functioning God desire. Meaning we think God should think like us. He should act how we expect or want him to. And he should be generally fashioned in his views on life in the world as we would desire him to be. This comes out most often when someone is explaining why they don't believe in Jesus or why they're rejecting a certain part of the scriptures. Usually they will say something like, quote, I could never believe in a God who blank. As if in order to be God, he has to agree to our decided upon standards. This is not me. This is the words of the late Tim Keller. He says it this way. If your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. But as we learn to grow our doctrine, to grow our beliefs and thinking back to a big ruling, unlimited by time and space and inability God, this reminds us and convicts us God is God. That humbles us. He does not think like you and I. He does not operate like you and I. He is not subservient to our demands or views of the world. He is not created in our image. We are created in his, that he is the creator and we are the creation. He is eternal. We are finite. He is infinite. We live with so many limits. He is omnipotent and we are frail and weak. He is independent and we rely on him for everything. He is the creator. We are the creature. He has what theologians call creator rights. This is what the Psalms tell us in Psalm 100, verse 3. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and therefore what? We are his. I think about God's rebuke of Job. In the book of Job, Job is a man who walks through all of this suffering. He's trying to remain faithful. His friends are giving him all this kind of terrible advice. He finally starts to doubt and question God. And this is how God responds to Job in 38.4. Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundation of the earth? It wasn't in the beginning, Job. It's not in the beginning, Tim. In the beginning, who? God. So he says, Job, tell me if you have understanding. 
Because if God is God, then here's the good news for us, church. If God is God, who is not God? You and me and all of us. And so because of that, we get the beautiful invitation from the scriptures to humble ourselves before him. If you read from Genesis to Revelation, one of the constant invitations you'll see is that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God hates the proud, hates the righteous, the self-righteous heart, hates the one who would lift themselves up, make themselves to be like God, but he gives grace and love to those who would humble themselves in his presence to lower ourselves before him, to come with confidence because of the blood of Jesus, but trembling because he's God and we're not. And so we in humility, as we learn to view God rightly, surrender to him and his ways and his commands and his teaching. And this shapes us and it shapes us in a, a, a whole host of ways. It, it shapes our view of the scriptures, right? Humility shapes our view of the scriptures, meaning when humility means we don't read the scriptures as if we're the authority over it to take it or leave it. We read in submission to God's authority as revealed in his word. This shapes our view of surrender. Humility means when God calls us to give up something, we don't debate or argue or try to excuse our way out of it. Humility means we surrender to the God who knows more than we know. If I can say it this way in our cultural moment, this is why as Christians, it shapes our view of gender, sexuality. Humility means not seeking to make our body something other than what the creator has designed us to be, but bringing ourselves under his good and gracious design. Shapes our view of sex. Humility means we listen and we follow how he has told us to function within our bodies and how we use them or don't use them sexually. It shapes our view of relationships. It shapes our view of the church. It shapes our view of life in the workplace. It shapes our view of our families and so on and so on and so on and so on. There's a repentant humility that comes when our view of God is lifted up by the creed and by Genesis 1. And so each week when we say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, what we are confessing is that God is God and we are not. We're going to humble ourselves before him. That's the first. Here's the second. Second is trust. Trust. A life of deeper trust. We do not worship a small, incompetent God. We do not worship an absent God. This is what Psalm 115.3 says. It's a repeat of what we read earlier. Our God is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. So we reread that, and we let it bring us to our knees in humility and surrender, but we also let it deepen our heart-level trust in the rule and reign of our Heavenly Father, that the world is not outside of God's control, that our suffering is not outside of His sovereign will, that His purposes for this world and your life are not in danger. He does what He pleases. So here's the good news. This is the sub-point of, of trust, as you could call it, Pray. <laughs> Because here's the good news that comes out of Genesis 1.1. We're reminded that when we pray, we're not throwing out wish dreams into the sky. We're not just launching some stuff up, hoping somebody's up there to hear it and to do something on our behalf. We are, for those in Christ Jesus, for those who have trusted in him for salvation, when we pray, we are calling upon our mighty father, who is not bound by time, who is not bound by space and limit, who is not bound by inability or capacity, who is not bound by need. You are calling upon the God who controls the wind and the waves, causes the grass to grow, or in my yard, the weeds, sends the rain, spins the world on its axis. You are pleading with the one who gives life and breath and everything to all mankind. You are petitioning and begging the one who hung the stars in place, who knits you together in your mother's womb and who appoints the rulers over the world. And so church, you can trust him can trust him. When you pray, you're not praying to a weak, incompetent, hope he can do something, God. 
You're praying to the God of the universe who does whatever he pleases. And so let it draw you into worshipful trust that every Sunday and every week in group and on your own, if you want to start reading it, you say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. What you are saying is I can trust him, that he's more forgiving than my sin, that he's stronger than my weaknesses. He's more faithful than my doubts. He's more present than my fears. He's more comforting than my sorrow. I am his and glory upon glory through the cross of Christ. He is mine. That's the God we get to pray to. And so we trust him. This week, this is where we'll close. This week, as I was, I was working on this sermon, I was reminded of one of my favorite hymns uh, from my childhood. You may be familiar with it. You might not. That's okay, too. Uh, it's called, This is My Father's World. And as I was thinking about this idea of trust, I just kept coming back to it. And it doesn't really, didn't really fit, but I just was like, I'm going to force it because I just kept, it kept ringing true in my heart. And so I just want to end by reading it over us as a church, this r- reminder of what is true from the creed and from the scriptures. And this is what it says. It'll, it'll be on the screen. It says, this is my father's world. And I rest me in the thought of rocks and trees, of skies and seas, his hand, the wonders wrought. This is my father's world, the birds their carols raise, the morning light, the lily white, declare their maker's praise. This is my father's world. Why should my heart be sad? The Lord is king. Let the heavens ring. God reigns. Let the earth be glad. This is my father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. He rules and he reigns over you, so humbly repent, and over your life and the world, so trust him more. Let's pray together. God, we love you. We love your word. We love your truths. And we love that we don't pray to or worship or sing about or beg or ask forgiveness from an incompetent God, a small God, a tiny God, a a maybe God. But you are what the scriptures say you are. You're eternal. You're infinite. You're all-powerful. You're independent. You're not bound by all the things that keep us bound as humans. You're not limited. You're not weak. You're not frail. Your, your will and your purposes are not uncertain. The future you have spoken and promised is not in doubt. Lord, it's true. It's coming to pass. And so we trust you. So I pray for hearts of two things, Lord. I pray for hearts of hum- humble repentance for all the ways we functionally want to shrink you and make ourselves God in return, all the ways we want to make you into our image instead of us into yours, all the ways we want to tell you how to think, tell you how to act, dictate who you should be. Lord, I pray that we would repent in humility, that we would receive the same words that Job received in worship, that we weren't there when you hung the heavens. That's not in the beginning us, it's in the beginning you. So we repent of the ways we've tried to put ourselves above you, Lord. We also want to have a posture of prayerful trust. Lord, that we would run to prayer knowing that you're active and you're working. You long to hear your children cry to you and ask you for help. So we come to you confident that you do whatever you please. 
and that what you please is good and trustworthy and true. We love you. I need you to pray all these things in Christ's name and all God's people said.